here to give you a first-hand glimpse into the future of Canadian business. It's Rivers Corbett on the Startup Canada podcast. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. On this show, we connect you with the most innovative and entrepreneurial movers, shakers, and change makers across Canada. With day-in-the-life stories and in-their-shoes experiences, we dive into the true grit of running startup and scale-up companies and those driving the entrepreneurial movement. The Startup Canada podcast show is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. If you are a regular show listener, welcome back. If you're new to the program, hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Google Play Music and visit startupcan.ca to connect with both your local startup community and to join Startup Canada to access training, resources, and a peer network to grow your success. I'm Rivers Corbett and entrepreneurship is part of my DNA. Whether it's building my own companies or helping other entrepreneurs build theirs, this is my lane. Want to connect after the podcast? You can find me at www.meetrivers.com. Well, my gosh, am I ever excited to have my next guest on the show? Um, I think she was pretty excited too because she gave me her Twitter handle, or sorry, her Skype handle about a week and a half before uh, before we were ready to go. And that just shows great great organization, but uh, I know it's going to be great enthusiasm also as we get into the show. Just thrilled to have Gloria Roheim McRae on our show today. Gloria is the co-founder of Toronto-based digital consulting company Wedge 15, and I want to talk about how you came up with that name. I love the names. Since the company's inception nearly seven years ago, Gloria has crafted, crafted over 250 digital marketing projects for various nonprofits and SMEs across the country. Her most recent adventures landed her as senior value consultant at the West Coast Canadian giant Hootsuite, where she's responsible for creating strategic recommendations for top financial services clients. And by night, Gloria is building her next business, a financial education and advisory company with her husband, Ricardo McRae. Gloria made the bold decision to leave her steady career at a research firm in 2010, which that's how it all starts with us entrepreneurs. We leave the steadiness and head into the abyss, the adventure where she kickstarted her legacy as an entrepreneur, international speaker, TEDx keynote, and author. In her book, BYOB, The Unapologetic Guide to Being Your Own Boss, ranked as a bestseller on Amazon.ca and has since inspired a generation to forget their comfort zone and make a soft landing into becoming entrepreneurial with their careers. Fantastic. In today's podcast, we're going to talk to Gloria about how her self-starter mindset led her to rule the digital world and how she's navigating the new North American dream. How's that for an intro? Gloria, welcome to the show. Holy moly. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Holy moly. I love it. I love it. Okay, here we go. So what I want to talk about first is the end. What do you hope people are going to take from, uh, I know what is going to be just an amazing conversation. Hmm. Okay. Excellent. I want you to know that your career will be flexible, that the modern world of work is dynamic, that entrepreneurialism is a spirit, it's a mindset, it's a habit to build, and that no matter where you are, you can bring that self-leadership to your life, to your career, and to love. 
Wow. And to love. That's interesting. Let's dive into that for just a quick sec. So I don't even know where it is on the script yet, but uh, I don't, I'm sure there's not a reference to love. Can you talk about that? What you, why did you add love to that piece? And how, why is that uh, important to you as an entrepreneur? And as I guess, I guess as a human being. Totally. I think, uh, yeah, humans first. It's a human to human business. So love, love is essentially everything that life boils down to for me. I think generally speaking in, in, in hopeful circumstances, we all start from a, a moment of love right. and then, you know, everything we create, every act of, of a business, of creativity, of relationship, of friendship is about love. It starts from love and it is fostered by love and love will get us through those hard, hard times. It's gotten me through the hardest moments of entrepreneurship Mm. and by uh, convenient circumstances as well. My husband and I then, who wasn't yet my husband, and I started our business together. So um, love is where it's at. Love, I love, and I really wasn't going to do that as a pun, but I was going to say love it, and it's so true. <laughs> That's bang on. Well, look, Gloria, there's a, there's a lot of talk around millennials these days, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like to me, like the tech world gets all the love from from uh, from the uh, entrepreneurial journeys, um, and. After a while, people will say, you know, come on, stop talking about these millennials. I mean, yeah, they're mm-hmm. great people, lots of fun. I got kids that are millennials, but but you write in defense of millennials and you describe a new North American dream. Can you tell us about that? You know, and what is your dream life? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. So millennials, gosh, I mean, I'm as tired as probably the next person about the volume of articles about it, the conversations. It's almost, it's almost a hilarious self-fulfilling prophecy where the biggest characteristic of the millennials is this entitled self-absorption. And yet here we are, me, millennial, talking about myself and my people. So, you know, it is what it is, but it's true to, to look back in any moment in history and the most recent generation that latest uh, generation entering the workforce or starting businesses or starting families is always dogged by the previous generation or by the previous two generations. Yeah, of course, we got to blame I, somebody, right? We do. We do. Mm-hmm. But you know, what is that? To me, that's just a, it's an example of resistance to change because mm-hmm. what happens in your 20 somethings, which is where that millennial demographic is on average right now is you're and, and my husband says it so well, if you're not questioning and fighting the system, then you're not doing anything because that's the time in our lives to do it. And so I think we're seeing that with an enormous workforce uh, growing of, of a different caliber. We've seen in my case, for example, what it looks like to spend a career in a company and then toward the end of it at retirement be downsized or been packaged out and then not have a pension or not have a proper retirement plan to fall back on. Even the notion of retirement to this generation is questionable because why are you trying to live a whole life to then get to a point where you no longer do something Mm -hmm. and you start enjoying it after the fact? So I think a lot of dynamics change that. I mean, you could even go economical and look at the way the cost of living has shifted over the last three decades and even looking mm-hmm. back to my parents who who came from Hungary, who came to Canada, who didn't have even a tenth of the education I've gathered here yet, who who were better off financially earlier on than I was with you know being a Canadian with multiple degrees, with multiple languages, with Canadian experience. It just shifted the tide. We don't see the world the same. So mm. with that and with digital communication, all of those aspects coming together, it's just shaped us differently. It has us be value driven in a different way. Nothing that I'm sure your listeners haven't heard of before, but why I'm so passionate about it is because I also want us to look at our desire for immediate gratification. And these are lessons I learned myself in my later stages of millennial, uh, as I mature in that generation <laughs> yes. to realize that, you know what, there are some real values that even we 
don't need to throw out with the with the bathwater and right. take from the previous generation. So I'm just excited about it because again, it's my, it's it's this is my time. There will be a time a decade or two from now where I'll be looking to that next generation and asking them, what do you see about the future? What are you building? Yeah. And so right now I'm passionate about it because we're the ones who are forging that that next direction for. <laughs> the world. Uh, yeah, I love it. And, and I, in a, look, I play kind of reference the point of blah, 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 millennial, millennial, but I concur with you a hundred percent. We, uh, we need to embrace the next generation, learn from them. So on. I was at church. Oh my gosh. Um, I don't know what, doesn't matter what week it was, but the pastor <laughs> said, Hey, all you people that are 50 years older, put, raise your hand. And he said, okay, everybody under 50, you need to hang out with these people to learn from them. And you know, the 50 yes. year olds are punching their, their chest. So, and then he reversed it. He says, all right, those people that are under 50, he yes. said, raise your hand. And he says, all you over 50 year olds need to hang out with them and learn from them also. And uh, I think that's really the theme of what you're representing here is there's lots to be learned from each other as we move forward. And um, I mean, ultimately, it's the love of being human, first of all, right? And uh, we're all Absolutely. in this together. Mm. And I think, you know what, Don Tapscott, one of another, another Canadian icon when it comes to the world of digital and someone who mentored me for a short while, who's now writing about the Bitcoin revolution and oh, yes. who's at the World Economic Forum and really making Canada proud, I think. Nice. On many, he talks a lot about reverse mentorship. And when he wrote Grown Up Digital, which is talking about even how we're wired differently as a millennial generation, my whole career, by the way, being digitally driven is a, is a testament to that. Yes. Uh, it, you know, he talks about the, the importance of doing just what your pastor was talking about, yeah. having generation mentor reverse. And in turn. So there's that two-way exchange that I think is lost in all of the dogging of the, you know, this generation or that, or one way of living or, or the other. And by the way, uh, when I was at the phase of writing my book, I was, there's, you know, <laughs> I reflect a lot on the last five years since I penned it. And I realized at that point, I I was more entitled than ever about how righteous and how right my perspective on the world was. And what I've since learned, literally five years later, from a number of encounters and a, a number of inevitable bumps along my journey, is that there was a lot I could have learned if I was willing to listen to that other generation. So it's a two-way exchange, and mm -hmm. I think um, I think it's part of that growth if you're if you're taking responsibility for your life. Well, you might, my, my uh, I, I think this is a really important point. And I, I, I just, uh, I want to reinforce one other thing. And I want to get into the, your world as the founder of uh, wedge 15. But my grandfather was 94 when he died. And I asked him a few years before he died, I said, you know, how do you, how do you do it? And he says, rivers, I have friends that are 20, 32, hmm. 46. And he says, if all I did was hang out with my people, I wouldn't have anybody to talk to along the way. And he was so bang mm -hmm. on. And I attributed a lot to the reason he lived a fulfilling life to the age of 35 a year, or, or sorry, 94. So uh, again, a reinforcement for that. But let's kind of jump in, Gloria, about uh, Wedge 15. Why that name? First of all, tell us about that, the, the name. <laughs> Love it. Love that question. <laughs> Lots of ways to explain it, but it's fundamentally this. Have you ever read, and I'm sure some of your listeners inevitably had, um, The Tipping Point yes. by Malcolm Gladwell? So you know then that it takes a very small percentage of people to take something that's on the fringes or that is innovative or, again, not popularized and and tip it into the masses. So that number of those early adopters and innovators is only 15%. That's mm. what it takes. Um, often when we're thinking about change, we always think it has wow. to be this absolute overhaul, right? Yes. And that we discredit the idea that a simple, um, smaller but consistent 
action would be equally powerful. And so when when my husband and I were coming up with the corporate name, we were looking at the kind of projects we worked out on, the things we thrived in, the kind of customer that we served best, and the people that we could get the most results with. And it was typically the 15% who wanted to take something that they saw, a vision or uh-huh. a way of doing business that was, let's say, perceived as unconventional or not yet popular and tip it and translate it into a way that would reach a larger mass of people. And that is when we decided, you know, we will create that wedge for the 15%. And so it's just that simple and it's short and the URLs were available. The domain names were there. Social had it. <laughs> so, you know, that's just that means, you know, you can take it and it's yours. So we, uh, we rolled with it. I love it. I want to talk about how you and your husband work together as a team in a bit, but, um, I, uh, um, I, I look at your company and, and the wedge, your knee learning, uh, you develop an e-learning program and done all kinds of all over 250 custom strategies and branding and, and digital, um, you know, what does, how do you, how do you, first of all, identify the wedge, the people that are the wedge? And second of all, how do you serve them? Can you dig a little mm-hmm. deeper into that, Gloria? My pleasure. Yes. Yeah. So huh, that by far the most challenging and the most exciting question, right? Because mm. how, how do you figure out the best fit? How do you not only address a problem with your business or with your service or with your product, but you also find the right people for whom it's the most useful and relevant. And so early on, we realized this would have to be a boutique company. Mm-hmm. Um, as a consulting company, you have a few options. You could, you could either go after really large um, contracts or partner up with a larger existing agency and go into sort of consortium kind of structure right. and build an agency um, and then have employees and skill and, and do that. Or you could try the more modern, uh, more nimble, more uh, cost resilient, I think, and a little bit on some fronts, um, more simpler structure, wear 10 hats as two people and mm-hmm. do a boutique firm. And so that's what we did. And by nature of having but thinking a different way, not having the scale of, say, an entire employee body and having about three people permanently with Wedge 15, but then having a, a nimble group of subcontractors that we yes. can assemble for, assemble for a project and then disassemble for the next and kind of bring the right ninjas together yes. for, the, for, you know, for the next one on the horizon. It, it inevitably um, it, it attracted a certain kind of person and it, and it, it also repulsed a certain kind of person. Sure. And, and that happened to naturally work out. Of course, a few, a few hiccups, uh, notwithstanding, because sometimes someone shows up, they've got the budget, they've got, um, an idea they're willing to pay. It seems like a good idea. And your instincts as an entrepreneur tell you that you could take it for the cash flow sure. to your company. Um, and it could work out, but you feel like there are definitely going to be hiccups along the way. Uh, sometimes you take it, sometimes you didn't. In the early stages, we took them. Yes. We learned a lot about why it would never be worth the money. So, for example, my husband often said, um, the price is higher than the cost right. that they paid. Right. And so right. um, that's when we realized we had to start defining a persona that would work and resonate well with us. And when mm-hmm. we did that, which was about three years in, I'm kidding you not that the entire business tripled almost in a month since that change to our marketing material, to our product packaging, to our pricing structure, because we started only speaking as though we were talking to one person. Mm -hmm. And that one person was sort of an embodiment of a persona. And it also meant we could get really bold with our, our conversation, with our marketing, with what we were offering, because we were okay with the fact that we would upset some, that others would be unhappy and that we wouldn't be able to serve everybody who found our, our, our business or, or who we actually reached out to. And when that happened, we started to take off to a different level and started to kind of stand out from the crowd 
a wonderful marketer, Seth Godin, talks about being a purple cow. Yeah, I love and that we, book. <laughs> oh, so good. And yes. so, of course, you know, yeah. we found our own way of becoming a purple cow. Uh, the name started to resonate with people. It was, it, you know, the echo for us was clear because we'd go places and they wouldn't remember our name when we'd run into people we hadn't met, but who had seen us on social media or on in the media. And they'd say, oh, you guys are the Wedge 15 people, mm, right? And so, mm. and that was one of those moments where I realized it was getting sticky. Mm. Um, so I think being able to, to, be willing to upset. And, you know, as a Canadian, we know we love to be pleasant. We love to be diplomatic. We love to be polite. And we had to be really courageous in just standing where we stood and being willing to upset and to have also frustration as much as we'd have really excited, raving people who loved working with us. So that number um, got smaller, but it got more, more, um, I, I would say it'd be, more it was profitable. richer. <laughs> more profitable. And it was richer in the sense of the kind of work we were able to work on. And that's when we got one of the biggest contracts that we had um, to date, which was a foreign contract to go work in Trinidad and Tobago for the government and do a, a project that ended up opening the Pan Am Games and a digital brand that Brilliant. put Trinidad and Tobago's fashion industry on the world map all through digital and social media. And when you got that contract, Gloria, did you say, oh my gosh, how were you going to be able to handle this? Or was there a great confidence because you had made that pivot in year three, totally understanding who you were talking to, who your client was and what their needs were. That didn't matter. You, you got this covered. Um, so perfect question. <laughs> I wish that were the case. And it isn't. <laughs> And it isn't because that, and that might've been the project in the moment 2012 that I realized that I might never feel comfortable again. And yes. that's when I decided actually shortly after that project to write my book and to start to put to paper and to structure the ideas that I hoped would inspire others to take those leaps. Um, you know, and, and also that was a moment when I realized the value of having a cash flow surplus and not just bootstrapping a digital business mm -hmm. and, and, and going project to project and then reinvesting everything into the business instead started to think about, and that was sort of the seed planting of, you know, I, we want to learn more about finance too, because we're real hustlers. We're gritty. We're willing, you know, we sold everything we had. We, we didn't have investors. We leveraged our own resources to build the company. Mm. And that also uh, creates a, a level of stress and anxiety that, it started to impede our creativity. And after uh, that project, which was a large scale one, mm -hmm. we realized that there's a value in starting to learn about what we could do with these larger influxes of money when they came, because, you know, there's an ebb and flow to these cash flow scenarios in a, in a company like ours. And frankly, in any company, sure, yeah. um, just different scales and proportions. And that's when I was like, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, you know, you only ever, if you ever learn about financial concepts in the average education system, or just by reading news or basic articles, you'll learn, you know, bad debt, you'll hear things. I shouldn't say learn, but you'll hear things like debt is bad. Mm. Real estate is good. Mm -hmm. uh, savings is good. Debt mm. is bad. That's mm. really it. You mm. know, um, put your money away for a rainy day. And so when you're in a business system where you don't have that consistent salary, where you're reinvesting constantly, but you're still expected in our social setting to, to build a certain kind of North American lifestyle. And that's where that dream will come in. Yes. Um, you know, we realized we didn't have the understanding and the knowledge. And that's what turned us toward uh, the financial services industry to really dig and start poking at, you know, what, what does, what are people with a lot of money doing? What are these founders or these wealthier generations of Canadian families doing in this country um, today that will help set them up and their, their future generations up so that they can keep going? So that was sort of one of those moments uh, that then came into full fruition as our next business uh, after our son was born in 2016. How do you and Ricardo, that's, that's your husband's name, correct? Yep, you yeah. got it. How do you and he 
live with each other. And I'm <laughs> and I say that with great respect, by the way, because I, I you've totally got understand. a family, you're, you know, your husband and wife, but you're also business partners. How do you, what are the rules that make it work? Because it does work because of the results that you're seeing. So you can, yeah. you, can you, can you share that with our listeners from coast to coast that are husband sure. and wife teams that want to be working together. Like I could never, my wife and I, no way in the world could work together. It's just not going to happen, but you've yep. obviously made it work. And there's tons of people that want to make it work with their, uh, with their spouses. Can you talk about some of the, some of the, uh, the rules or the, I guess the formula yeah. that's made it at least, the rules at least bearable. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you don't, yeah. So that we're still alive today and we haven't yes. <laughs> taken each other out. Yeah. Well, um, keep in mind and with all uh, frank truth, there's naturally going to be tension sure. at different moments because humans are humans. But we're, I think there are certainly people, and this is where I would classify Ricardo and I, who had already a really great alignment in our differences and okay. our compliments. Right. So from, you know, that was like step one. Okay, you've got skills that I don't have. I've got skills you don't have. Or we strengthen each other together. Uh, we didn't premeditate this. You know, when I started and when I left that market research job to start the business, uh, he was already doing his own practice. And I was learning a lot about business from him. Mm -hmm. I had never really imagined that with the skills and knowledge I had that I'd be suitable for entrepreneurship. But frankly, in retrospect, that's only because I hadn't heard about it as an option, which is why I thought it was so important for me to write my book so that at least the exposure to the notion that there are other ways to do your career, which is now becoming more popular, of course, yes. um, than just go find a job after yep. a basic, you know, you know, skill set from university. Um, those weren't available to me. They weren't obvious anyway. Right. And so, you know, we went in on one project together. This was the catalyst. And this is what I would recommend everyone a number one step, start with a pilot project. Do not, go, mm -hmm. do not go all in first because it's like anything. You don't get married without a date. Right. <laughs> I mean, unless you're match made, which is respectable, but it's different. And yes. so in this context, yes. uh, you know, we, we dated the idea through a pilot project. It was a project where a customer of mine needed uh, other subcontracting services that I couldn't offer, but that he could. So, you know, across the living room floor between our laptops, I said, Hey, would you like to bid on this with me? Should we go in? Could you give me a quote for X, Y, Z? We'll go in together. Um, I'll package it under my consultancy. And this was before we actually formed Wedge 15 together. Okay. And, uh, that project was not, again, had been more lucrative than other independent projects we had done. And it was really impactful because we realized, you know, know what we're the, the output of what we create for customers is so much stronger when we add all these dimensions so that was step one and so it was it initially happened by running into pilot project opportunities and then when we bid on that large project for the government and it was the largest win and people in, already thought we were one company which mm. at that point yet i realized you know as a brand we would probably be more powerful together as one people already think it's one and so then we made it more formal but the other things were this learning along the way there has to be great respect. This would maybe be important point number two mm -hmm. to the value of different and diverse human skill sets and human behaviors and approaches. Right. Because we have always been aligned on where we want to go. We have vastly different perspectives on how we're going to get there, though. Right. And we have different time uh, tempos. You know, I'm really fast sp sp spoken and and really love to be busy with. Not busy, I shouldn't say that, but uh, I'm more likely to lean into activity faster. He's more likely to be reflective, contemplative before he acts. Yes. And they both have a time and place, and they're both valuable. And so when we found tension where I thought he should speed up or he thought I should slow down or, he, we, you know, he thought I might have been hasty and I thought he might have been uh, overly passive about something. We realized, well, never mind how, are we still 
aiming toward the same end. Right, and right. that that reset, I think whether it's business or a common project or whether it's your family you're trying to nourish or your your goals together, that general principle I think is a strong one, period. And then um, maybe because three three steps are always fun, I'll add a third. <laughs> sure. That, um, I think the third thing is just to really be diligent about whether or not you believe in work-life balance. So we realized a little early on, and that's changed a little today because of our son, and that changed my perspective more than even his, but um, we didn't really care to have a division between work and life. We thought, by the mm. way, we're the same person in both places. This, this, this attempt to achieve balance by having this cutoff time and this weekend and, you know, this is business hours. And when we go on a date, we don't talk about business was very restrictive to us. And we wanted, and we're passionate about what we were doing together and we're very creative. So we found that it fueled our love and our relationship as much as it fueled our bank account, so to speak. So we just said, forget it then throw it to the tide. We're going to integrate work and life, not balance it. And that worked for us for a good solid seven years. And then that shifted and morphed with our son, because that, of course, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> and what's but, your son's um, name? He's Keon. Keon, love it. Yep, little Keon's nineteen months today. So, or nice. not today, but this month. Right so on. yeah, he, um, you know, with 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 anything, flexibility, appreciation for differences, and the willingness to reinvent your. How can I put this? I guess your perspective on things. In our case, it was balance. We just said, all right, well, so they say you should have work-life balance. We say that doesn't work. So let's just be cool with that. And we were fine. So that helped us do what we did. It meant that we worked when we wanted to and when it worked for us and when we were productive and when we found we were running into hiccups, even if that was the middle of the day, that's when we would take the break. But we might work through Saturday and Sunday. And that suited us just fine, again, for seven years. But um, the willingness to adapt, and that's where I could easily transition to how I ended up how we both ended up in a different place today than where we started with Wedge 15. Uh, you know, quick fast forward, my son was born, our li- our lives changed, our priorities shifted, they transformed, our life got richer, but it also got um, more complex because all of a sudden, all the time that we could just equally share became also shared with Keon and he became a priority because until he can take care of himself fully, that became a priority. And and that shifted things. And I think that six month period, though I didn't take an official maternity leave, we still did, we we bid on projects, we worked. That was shortly after our TEDx talk. A few other hiccups showed up like in any business where it seemed like our strategy toward building our customer base was changing again. And we had an opportunity. I started to feel like I was hungry for the inputs of a collaborative work environment beyond just him and I, Mm -hmm. though we love working together. And I thought, um, you know, I, I'd be interested in working on a consulting project. Uh, Lo and behold, you say something like that to the universe, universe, you get honest with yourself. (laughs) And, you know, it turned out Hootsuite was opening a Toronto office and was looking for essentially, uh, let's hear this, an entrepreneurial type who was a self-starter, who can be the CEO of her desk manage and build the company um, around financial services. Of course, keep in mind that interest I had already started a couple years back on on just financial services in general. Yep. And Ricardo felt like going a little more introspective and also doing the financial services thing, but you know, starting a creative podcast and doing some other things and maybe winding down the activities of our consultancy in favor of the next projects. So naturally, our son was born, new ideas were born, our ongoing communication um, helped us morph and go slightly different pivoted directions. And I think that's of all entrepreneurial lessons, the most important. And what I said at the beginning, which is that to be flexible, things are going to change their dynamic. Um, you, you have, you know, resisting 
the shift or the transformation is rarely in our favor. I haven't seen an example yet, but I won't say it isn't ever. Um, in my case, it, it, it opened the door to the next opportunities. And what I can see today is that though that linear path that most of us want to see in our life where A plus B led to C doesn't look that way. That zig and that zag took us to to today and our marriage is stronger. Our creative projects are among our favorite memories. Our legacy with Wedge 15 continues as we pivot that customer base into our new financial services business and help them in a different way now. So um, I just love that because we have a digital presence and because we kept it nimble on digital, we were able to adapt to the changes in our customer base, the market and our lives such that today we still are able to live the version of our dream that means the most to us, which is that we have time freedom and that we have our, a, a way to creatively make our living on our own terms. Wow. <laughs> I'm thinking about who's is, is rivers even involved with this interview even more. This is fantastic. What you've done oh. taking us through this journey. I love it. And it, you've, you've weaved it very nicely into an amazing journey. And, uh, and thank you for reflecting about that and, and keeping us going in the direction that is impactful for our listeners. I really appreciate that. Gloria, two things that came out of that conversation that, uh, or this, 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 uh, this journey we went through is the, the first one is, uh, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the reference to work-life balance. I freaking hate that. I really, uh, really hate it because isn't life inclusive of work and right. personal and ups and love and downs and all that kind of stuff. It's such a stupid comment as if work is not a part of your life. So uh, I love that, that, that you've, you weave that into, we did what was important for us and we didn't try to delineate uh, with uh, closing doors that open up another one. The mm-hmm. other question I had to, I have to ask you though, as part of that relationship and, and thank you for exp- uh, again, taking us through the journey of your business and your pivots and respecting the legacy and still the part of your life and all those uh, sorts of wondrous things and being open to the journey. And it's such a thing, isn't it? You look back on your life and you can see the stepping stones, how it led you to where it is, but you just don't know going forward. But in your, in your, um, relationship with Ricardo. And it, it, I think it's an important nugget because we don't talk about much of this uh, with, with couple entrepreneurs. Um, is there a veto element to Ricardo gets, gets veto over this and Gloria gets veto over that as part of the management of that process or you just let it naturally flow? Oh, I love that. So could I answer that uh, from actually a, a contract standpoint, let's like a legal, a share- so, yeah. yeah, let's do stories. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. From a shareholder agreement perspective, you know, we got married right around when we actually incorporated and, and officially merged. So we had been doing business three years together as subcontractors to each other before we consolidated it in 2013 and called it wedge 15, but it started in 2010. Right. And when we got married, we had a contract and we thought, you know, let's be responsible adults. Now let's solidify this in a proper sit down with a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, and talk about our shareholders agreement. And Ricardo had um, thought, you know, let's make, let's, let's discuss the end so we can set it and forget it and actually just be in the present and never have to worry about how this would go if it ended. Uh, The marriage as much as life, as much as the business, right? right? And so he, he was really prudent about, and I'm not sure where the legal concept came up for him or, or where he came up with it, but he wanted a sunset clause where uh-huh. if ever things just weren't working or if ever we wanted to part ways as a couple, or maybe not a couple, maybe we remain married, but one of us wants to go a different way. And for whatever reason, the other wants to um, maintain rights. Each of us would have one opportunity to offer something to the other 
as a buyout or as a sort of exit clause. And the way that works is it's one offer. The person who wants to leave or the first person to make the offer has to make it good enough that if I refused it, they would have to make that, they would have to um, uphold that offer themselves. So per- perhaps I would say, buy me out. Right. If he says no, I'd have to buy him out for $1 million. Right. So it was a very interesting sort of seemingly equitable arrangement so that we would honor each other in the process and not end up in this back and forth debacle. And I thought yes. that was an interesting way to think about even even marriages because, you know, it's not a comfortable topic, but but we got to get real with things. Marriage is a 50-50 and, and I think it's only growing in terms of divorce. It's an interesting institution. It's an interesting contract. Yes. But how do you do it so you don't ruin each other in the process if life changes, if you change and, you know, that arrangement comes to an end. So we, we were really open and honest and upfront about how we would want to treat each other while times were still good about how we'd want it to go if things turned bad. And I think that gave us so much freedom Love it. that we just were able to run things. Mm. And, um, mm. and even, and I'm even thinking like how, you know, we did that also when, when, um, when Keon was born, it was like, Oh, right. I guess we got to talk about life insurance differently now. Yes. So how do we want our end of life celebration to go? Let's get all that figured out again. And what do we want it for him too? So it's just, um, it's really refreshing to me though. It was harder at the beginning and now it's just a natural part of our relationship and life. Sure. We just get straight about things and it's so much easier than with all the worry we have in general and what all we could worry about in a business and in a, in a relationship, just deal with the worst case scenario as soon as you can. And then, like I said, set it and forget it. Yes. I, I, I think that's so brilliant. I really, really do. Because it's, as you're discussing this as to what you and your husband went through to, uh, to, to deal with that contractual issue, all I keep thinking is exhale. Ah, I don't yep. have to carry that weight around for how yes. long it's going to be because it's already resolved. And I don't have to say yep. what'll happen. Well, you know what's going to happen, you know, you know, in a conceptual sense is through law. Yep. But uh, I think that's really brilliant that you did that. And uh, we're able to match that quote unquote professional to personal uh, contract in, in as part of it. Um, Gloria, we've, uh, we've been through, uh, a lot of things and, and, and about half of the questions that we had on our scripts are not been addressed, but I got to be respectful of the fact we're still dealing with an entrepreneurial audience here. You and I could talk forever on a lot sure. of the stuff that's happened, but I want to, I want to close our conversation if I could, please getting back to your book, uh, sure. because I think that's a, that's really an, an amazing accomplishment that you've been through. It is obviously a labor of love. Um, and, uh, uh, it's called the BYOB, the unapologetic guide to being your own boss. And it, and, and first of all, how does somebody, uh, how does somebody find uh, your book? How can they easily get access to your book? Oh, thanks for asking that too. So that's everywhere. Uh, you'd likely go online in a digital world to find it. Amazon, Barnes and Noble in the U S or in Canada, Indigo chapters. Uh, it's in all digital bookstores. I don't know that there are many uh, physical bookstores that you'll find it in at the moment, but online you will get it. And, um, and yeah, what can I tell you about that book? Yes. I'm happily give me the top that. two things. You know, you've got an audience of of wannabe bosses, and um, and you're saying, and you and you got to leave them with two nuggets. What are the two nuggets from your book that will cause them to say, "I got to read more. I got to I got to run to Barnes and Nobles. I can't walk." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> awesome. So. It's a six chapter process and there's workbooks included. So this is a working book. This is not for the just 
fodder of reading something for inspiration, although I hope that the stories of the people I tell uh, stories about and my own stories will inspire. This is about putting a pen down, following exercises, and coming out the other side with a plan for yourself about what it is you need to still work on or what you need to do to get your business launched. So that's the crux of the book. But I think the most important chapter is the chapter about sales and selling like a boss. Right. Sales, especially for the generation of young entrepreneurs, for whatever reason, whether it was the ShamWow guy on TV or those, you know, again, some a similar infomercial seems like a bad word yet. If you're doing anything, if you want an idea to, to go viral, if you want to convince someone to go on a date with you, if you want to um, resolve a matter, whether it's at university or whether it's in your workplace, you've got to do some selling. So you're packaging and positioning things <laughs> in a way that appeals to people. And so that concept is in every single one of those chapters because the thing that I've always done best is package and position. Love it. And so sales is a beautiful thing. It will walk you through what to do. And it, there's even sales scripts on, on how to manage sales conversations so that you can get great results. Uh, you know, <laughs> It's, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that business is simply just a dating game. And that's really yeah. what it comes down to. And, uh, and as you're saying the package, you know, I remember, remember telling my family about my wife, her name's Monique. And I said, yeah, she's a complete package. And just when you're saying that, yeah, she's got this and she's got, and this is how it all comes together. She exactly. quote unquote sold herself to me. Of course I was quite eager to open the package and, uh, <laughs> and go on the journey, but you know, that's it was wild everywhere. that you say package. I think it's so bang on. You got it. You got it. It's, it's And that's really it. No matter what it is that matters to us in life, it's all about packaging, positioning, and then selling it. And, yeah. and that's a beautiful thing. This is how we are able to create the lives that we want. This is how we're able to move toward our dreams. This is how we get the people we want in our lives to, to be in our lives. And, and, you know, again, and then how we make a living. Yes. That's what we do. Even if you're not an entrepreneur, but right. you're Mm-hmm. Right. You're mm-hmm. at, you know, you're going to a job interview. Mm-hmm. All of those skills are relevant. So I just really wanted those to be something that 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 the new graduates and then this turned into something that actually funny enough, the boomer generation took hold of, too, <laughs> because, they thought, you know, I'm at the end of my my traditional career and I'm ready to do that thing I've always wanted to do. How do I even start? Yes. So between new graduates, uh, the boomer generation and then some of those more reflective entrepreneurs in between, it was interesting to see where this book went and who yeah. and who fit onto it. Wow. wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Gloria, how does how do people get a hold of you to hang out with you online? Hey, hey. anything <laughs> social, but you could find me most likely on Twitter or Instagram. Those are my favorite, and the handle is the same in both cases. Gloria Roheim. Love it. Spell Roheim for us. R O H E I M. Roheim like Anaheim. <laughs> and you have said that how many times in a year? I think a million. Yeah, <laughs> I love it, Gloria. I can't thank you enough for being on our podcast today. Thank you for dealing with my technical ineptness and uh, holding on there while we made it through. But uh, it's been well worth my time, and uh, I know for our listeners also. Thank you very much, and uh, you and Ricardo keep on happening with Keon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Want access to resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Until next week, I'm Rivers Corbett leaving you with a sneak peek of next week's episode. Hi, this is Emily Smith, CEO of No Campfire Required, and you are listening to the Startup Canada podcast. 
So you, you talked about you talked about customizable Pokemon Go. Now I know what Pokemon Go is, but can you kind of expand on that? What you mean by customizable Pokemon Go? And uh, I think I got a sense of what it is. It's very audience audience specific and so on. But uh, what does that mean to you? So for us. Um, Thank you to Niantic because it helps. <laughs> it helped our lives immensely when we could begin explaining what we do as customizable right. Pokemon Go. Yes. And but the reason we do that is because we create an experience that a given audience navigates with their phones. It's in a limited location. Uh, we can create something for a music festival, for example, that if the music festival is in a field, the, the game or the experience will, will just be inside that field. Yes. And we will have people going from place to place following a story. And they, they will be a character in the story or they'll be helping out a character in the story to accomplish a goal. 